0: Behind the news, my name is Doug Henwood. Today, Jameson Webster investigates why adolescents are so stressed and suicidal, and Raina Lipset surveys the state of the new New Left in the U.S. Earlier this month, the psychoanalyst Jameson Webster had a piece in the New York Times that ran under the title Teenagers Are Telling Us That Something Is Wrong with America, which is a good summary of her argument. Adolescents in this country are killing themselves at high rates, ER visits for psychiatric crises are increasingly frequent, and even those who don't reach those extremes of distress are reporting troubling levels of anxiety and despair. This is typically framed as a mental health crisis, which it is, of course, but the temptation is then to personalize those difficulties. Webster argues this is wrong. These are signs of a profound crisis in American society. And no, it's not all about being a teenager. It's far more serious than that sort of cliché. Jameson Webster, who's been on this show several times before, is a psychoanalyst based in New York City. She also teaches at the New School for Social Research and is just out with a collection of essays with the irresistible title Disorganization and Sex from Divided Publishing. Jamison Webster. As I recall, when we talked before the pandemic, um, you said your adolescent patients were having a pretty tough time of it, especially about intimate relations. Uh, they had friends, but the explosive power of sex scared them, and they're really afraid of any kind of intimate relationship, so that sort of, ha-ha, the last two years changed that.
1: I mean, they've obviously made it worse, but I think it's important to contextualize that it's not just the pandemic. And that's why I started the New York Times piece with the statistic that while suicide had been trending down in 2007 to 2019, it increased 60% amongst teenagers. So this is pre-pandemic. Pandemic obviously made that statistic worse, but only by just a little bit. It increased other problems, which is that, you know, 50% of teenagers said that they're unhappy and they're stressed out. Visits to emergency rooms was higher. Um, that became very extreme during the pandemic, as if teenagers needed to go to the emergency room to find relief from various forms of panic. But this precedes that, and that, that's kind of important for me that we not just blame the pandemic for the mental troubles that we're, we're trying to think about in teenagers.
0: Mm-hmm. What happened in 2007? It's a good question. <laughs> I mean, there are people, there's like one particular researcher, psychologist, I think, who blames social media and phones for it. Yeah. And I noticed the other night at your book uh, launch, you, you mentioned that you thought phones are really screwing us up.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So you, you take that seriously, you think it's important.
1: I do think it's important. I think that that's probably one of the big changes and then also the collapse of the housing markets right that's 2008 so there's the beginning of of some shift in this country with respect to economics and people's sense of whatever not being on the up and up and up and up anymore but it's not only the phones because it, it is the phones it is the internet it is something that this new technology is doing that we have zero grasp of and that's going to keep flying out from underneath us. But what I also wanted to point to in the article is that you have the phones added to a situation in which the social fabric is collapsing. And that's creating for me the suicidality. It's not the phones. It's the phones and a world that's falling apart or the meanings in the world are certainly falling apart and the, the hypocrisies and confusions and anger that they're confronting at home.
0: Do you have any sense of how the U.S. compares to other countries? Are they in the same boat, or are we uh, out on our own?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I, I looked at some of this a little bit. I mean, I think that we are... I think that across the board there's difficulties, but I think that we're, in, we're like in the heightened... <laughs> we're, we have a, a heightened sense of it.
0: So has been the country of, you know, you can remake yourself, you're an individual, you're so much responsible for your own destiny, mm-hmm. which I guess served uh, the country well to some degree, in some perverse way, maybe, when the country's in the upswing. Mm-hmm. But it's not doing so well now that it's hitting choppier waters. Do do, do, you, do you see that in, in your patients?
1: I do see that. That's what I see, and that's um, what I wanted to speak to. And it, it really came from trying to think about it, trying to think about these statistics that scared me, because one of the things that I read about was that The reason for the increase in suicidality in teenagers is because they're using more lethal means. So actually a lot of them are hanging themselves or jumping out of buildings. And that's not... That's
0: beyond the old cry for help.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's very serious. That's an act. And, you know, we used to think of teenagers as a lot of crying for help, but this is a real act. It's an act in the same dimension as shooting up a school. So the fact that these children are being pushed into very, very extreme acts was what I wanted to think about. And then I started reading Eric Erickson, who is not someone... I mean, nobody knows me, but it's not someone that I would be given to read.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that?
1: He's kind of pitted as the enemy from the like, Freudian, Lacanian perspective. He's thought of as like a mid-century American patrician... Psychiatrist, you know, like not someone who should be interesting at all. Um, You know, and you think of the eight stages of man, you know, he's like, oh, you know, first you're a child, and then you navigate security. So it like kind of had this goofy feel, but I read his book, um, Childhood and Society, and it's actually much weirder and more interesting than I had understood that it was. And he reflects on America. Maybe he had a really interesting position to think about America as a psychoanalyst having come from Europe, but he wanted to understand why Americans were the way they were. This is the 1950s. So um, in this book, he starts trying to say something about America, which is that it's need for mobility and it's need to never...
0: Social, geographic, or both?
1: Both. I mean, even he was saying the push towards the Western frontier, you know, that we're like, that we're like you know, you, you, you're always going to move farther. You're going to take over the frontier. You're going to move here, go there. And he had this kind of wild theory that, that mo- we, we depended on mobility at the expense of any cultural ideals. And that it was like this defiantly active personality that wanted to choose whatever it wanted to choose at any given moment, which is why our personalities could be held together with such extreme contradictions. We didn't care about the contradictions because we wanted to have them there in order to go this way or that way at any point in time.
0: Um, Richard Hostetter said that we never really developed a proper peasantry. Right. Because they're too busy flipping houses, basically, and moving <laughs> west.
1: And he said that, in fact, the the meanness of small towns made sense to him because of this. Because the person stopped moving, and then they had to justify their decision, and they justified it through a kind of meanness. I'm here, and it's better, and you know, it's it's definitely the right place to be, and it's better than that town over there. And you know, you you wish that you were here. So this this sort of small town mentality. Anyways, well, I,
0: I've read the Little House books with my kid yeah. uh, when he was really young, and. They could never stay in the same place they would have a nice house you know get set up and then they would just have to move on and then it'd be like in the middle of kansas and subject to six feet of snow and like nearly starving but that relentless urge to move on it mystifies me but it does seem deep in the national spirit
1: yeah and he he says we're also mean to old people because their bodies break down and they can't move in this country in particular And he said, they maybe solved the problem a little bit for themselves by inventing RV culture. (laughs) So I was like cracking up reading this book. And then he said, with his experience in hospital, he saw that when this incapacity to move or when the failure of the ideal of movement or the breakdown, you know, with respect to this American identity, like when it comes out from underneath the person, he says that they very quickly go towards somaticization, psychosis and delinquent behavior.
0: Because you define somaticization for the lay oh, audience.
1: Um, getting sick in your body, like like hypochondriacal sy- symptoms or psychosomatic Expressing symptoms. Expressing psychological problems right. physically. Yeah. yeah.
0: There seems to be a lot of that going around now. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. He wrote that about 60, 70 years ago, and if anything, it's only intensified. Right, right. Although you know the statistics show Americans are moving less than they have ever right, right now, but is this making us meaner? <laughs> we don't have that outlet anymore.
1: I mean, I think that that was the case during the pandemic, a real meanness came out, especially looking at what everyone else is doing and who's breaking the rules and wanting to punish them for it. And who's enjoying themselves too much during this pandemic time and showing your virtue or showing your disregard for the rules. This kind of feeling I was really overwhelmed with by within my patients who hadn't been like this. And all the collegiality, because nobody wants to go to the office anymore, and no one's forced to interact with each other. It's as if all of the rivalry and hatreds towards your colleagues that we have, and that's fine, and you keep it in check, but like, you know, they're just overwhelmed by it, and nobody wants to go back to the office, because no one wants to see those souls. <laughs> <holes>, <know? laughs> and then you're just looking at this, and you're thinking, how's anyone going to put anything back together?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the dividing lines between the maskers and anti-maskers. I I actually lost a friend over vaccination, too. Mm -hmm. Denounced me in a public article. I was just taken by surprise because I I thought vaccine mandates were a pretty good idea, actually. And he thought that was a terrible idea. It was authoritarian. Vaccines were fake. COVID was fake. And this is an extremely rational, sophisticated person who embraced a completely loopy worldview Mm -hmm. under the influence of the pandemic. I was shocked. I just don't... I'm still in shock. As are many of his friends. Um, but yeah, what produced that?
1: I mean, we have to confront each other and we have to bump up against each other and we have to negotiate um, each other and we have to negotiate all of, you know, psychoanalytically speaking, all of the negative feelings that we have towards the others who are in our space and who take our things and who we have to negotiate with and compromise and um, all of the envy and all of the jealousy. And to be together makes you do that. I think if you go away from that, it gets much worse. And the phones, the internet <laughs> is a way of not being with other people and then
0: But on the other hand, you're really in their business all the time too. There's an intimacy of a very certain filtered sort. Yeah. But it's not a real intimacy.
1: But it's not a real intimacy. And you can also you can do a lot of things undercover because you're not with the person in physical space, so you can, you know, we all know this. You can text something to somebody that you could not probably say to their face.
0: Yes, I know that very well. <laughs> <laughs> Both giver and receiver.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> that, Slavoj Žižek said somewhere that the, the anxiety, and this was years ago, the anxiety about secondhand smoke was a sense that uh, other people were a threat. Mm-hmm. Getting too close to them was scary. And then the pandemic really literalized that. Yeah. And you came to see your fellow human being as a threat to your health and life. That struck me kind of early on somebody came to deliver something and I was like, oh my God, I'm afraid of my fellow human. Mm -hmm. That's just a terrible feeling to have. I I think it still lingers even after things aren't quite so dire as they were two and a half years ago. Uh, How does a society get out of that?
1: I don't know. I mean, the teenagers are jumping out the windows and hanging themselves. One of the things that I hear about a lot from the teenagers is they want out.
0: But From where? How do they describe the confinement? What they want out of? Yeah, the, the hell that they're living in.
1: They want out of the pressures, contradictions, insolubilities, failures and seeming roads that promise things but that don't sound like things they even want. The world feels very enclosed and there's no exit. I mean, one of the things we know about adolescence is like you go do the rock and roll or you go do the sex, or you go do the drugs or you get interested in art or you get interested in something. Counterculture is great for teenagers. (laughs) Teenagers fuel counterculture. Many things are invented at that moment in time by people that age with the energy that they have. That's the
0: social contribution of young people to to bring some novelty to it.
1: Yeah, and bring something new. And I don't think that they feel like they have that possibility anymore. There's not a lot of counterculture anymore. Also because of the Internet.
0: Well, there's TikTok culture. But is it counterculture? Well, a lot of it seems like marketing. Right. In that Times piece, you said that uh, your adolescent patients looking at their parents who don't seem very happy, yet they want the same thing for their kids, and the kids don't want any part of it. Could you expand on that?
1: The first case study that I started with, because it it spoke to me about this young girl who whose parents she said seemed really unhappy they had this family in particular had all of the privileges one could want in a way i mean no one has all of them but they had many and yet they were very unhappy and and they weren't happy in their jobs they were happy in their lives and they were fighting all of the time and they were unhappy with their daughters because their daughters were in a way protesting against their life and they say you know we give you everything what's the problem
0: the definition of everything was somewhat limited bro. right yeah
1: but with this girl, she said, I don't, you know, why Why do I want this? Why do I have to pretend I want it? Why can't I protest against it? Why can't any of this have any room? I, and I just want out. And she saw a friend commit suicide, and so she thought it seemed like a viable option.
0: I'm speaking with the psychoanalyst, Jameson Webster. Some people will listen to this and say, well, teenagers have always been like this. And I remember being a teenager. It was not exactly a happy time, although I don't remember being anywhere near as distressed. And I certainly don't remember the pervasiveness of depression and anxiety that seem present now. So is this an illusion that we're experiencing that things have just gotten worse, or is it really the case that things have gotten worse?
1: Well, this is what I wrestled with, because you, like you know, I said, you, this sounds like your average teenager. There's not a lot, you know, looking at the contradictions, looking at the hypocrisies, being angry at the world, so on and so forth, but they're committing suicide. We know this, we know that there's a 60% increase in suicides. They're shooting up schools, they're committing violent acts to get out from whatever, the conflict within their mind that they can't find any other avenue to exit from. This worries me, I don't have a solution, I don't entirely know what's going on, but I wanted to say something about what I hear and to also say this is a problem and that you can't just put this problem as a problem of individual mental illness which is what all of the articles want to do. They just want to say, oh, okay, well, we have a mental illness problem, where this person was very mentally ill, so we need to get them services, or you know, we need to think about how to make help available for the teenagers. But I hear them responding to something in the world that we're not going to fix anytime soon, or we don't even agree on that it's a problem.
0: Well, I think our first conversation was about, all psychotropics that people are prescribed. And I imagine these teens are, you know, well, they talk about committing suicide, let's just change the mix of drugs, right? How do they talk about experiencing all this distress, this alienation from the world, all this anger uh, and aggression, whether it's turned outwards in this case of a shooter or inwards in the case of a suicide? Uh, how do they talk about experiencing that through the haze of the psychotropics?
1: I don't put any kids on medication I really, if I don't have to, which I don't even I have to. I don't know when, where that line is, but um, it's very far for me. You know, they tell me about all their friends on medications, and then they they want the medications because the friends are on them and say they help or just it's, it sounds like something to do. It's hard to talk about the medications because people get very, very upset. And oh, I no, that I've they... gotten that,
0: too. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of grief from interviewing you about this topic, but it's I think it's extremely important.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's really, really important. I mean, there there's a couple of things that I would say. One is when these medications were beginning to be invented... The people who invented them, the psychiatrists from those times, all have all admitted that they never thought that these would be drugs for a lifetime. They were meant to be something to handle acute situations. We put, we're now putting kids on these drugs. They stay on the drugs. No one knows how to get them off of the drugs. Everyone's afraid to get them off the drugs.
0: There's literally almost no research on how to get off it, right? Um, there was a really good piece of The New Yorker, like, what, a year ago or so, about, uh, on this topic, and made the point that the research is financed by the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. and they have no interest in getting you off it.
1: Yeah. And psychiatrists are very burdened and they have a lot of liabilities and people are very scared of the law and you know, doing something wrong. So what's happening now is that they don't want to take anyone off a medication they're on unless something happen. So they just layer them. And I have kids coming in on five, six, seven medications. There was another article. In their teens. In their teens or in their early, tw- no, in their early 20s because it started when they were right. teens. And there's a very good article in, um, I think it was in the Times about this. You know, that people are ending up on four, five, six, seven meds. And that the, these combinations, when you look at them, are terrifying.
0: I've been uh, following through the social media this Adderall crisis, right? There's a crisis of manufacturing, and all these people are desperate that their ADHD is out of control. Why do all these people have ADHD in the first place? Do we have any social explanation for what is driving this? Oh
1: my God, you're going to get me in so much trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did write about this. I mean, in my experience, treating people with ADHD, it's anxiety. Anxiety makes it very, very difficult to pay attention. It makes it difficult to stay with something. It makes it difficult to tolerate the negative feelings that concentration induces when you're doing something difficult, and it's an endless loop. So speed, which is what Adderall is, they gave it to the Nazis so that they can mass murder. This is true. Everyone knows this. Speed makes you high, and it gives you a big ego burst. Then it helps you dissociate negative feelings, like what makes it possible to kill somebody. So that's what Adderall does. And you can no doubt get your work done. And it's not just the people who are prescribed it. It's like all the teenagers at school taking it. They hand it out to each other. They'd use it to study longer, write a paper, you know, cram at the last minute. It's not just a drug for those with ADHD. Anybody can take it, and anybody can read three books and not get wrapped up in thinking about other things, or feeling bad, or not understanding, or so on and so forth. You just read like a machine. How have we gotten to this place? For me it's not that everyone has ADHD, it's that we have a lot of anxiety, we have a lot of pressures to succeed, we have no social net, no doubt making anxiety worse, and we have a pharmaceutical industry that makes billions of dollars, and so we have people prescribed speed.
0: And now they're taking something else because Adderall is in short supply, right, which sounds even more intense can't remember the name of it, but uh, I saw some, somebody posting on, on the social media that she wasn't able to eat because you know, the speed effect induces a lack of hunger and you don't want to eat and you're losing weight and not getting adequately nourished. It just seems really dire. Mm. If you question it, uh, you get a lot of uh, grief from people who think it saves their lives.
1: Yeah, you do. You do. And maybe one thing to come down on is just the, the fact that it's too easy. It's too easy to get these medicines at this point. And we know that. We know about the overprescriptions, And, you know, we should take the opioid epidemic, which is another another way that we're killing people. Um, we should take what happened with the opioid epidemic as the model for what's happening with all of these other... Med-
0: to the point where it's leading to declining life expectancy in the U.S. It's one of the contributing factors, I mean, aside from COVID, which is, you know, unheard of in what supposedly an advanced civilization. That happens in wartime and when the collapse of the Soviet Union... But here it's happening in you know, this almighty superpower where people are just falling apart.
1: Right. One thing I, want, I, I would also say about this whole thing is when I wrote this article for the New York Times, they were really, really grateful. And they were like, oh, this really clears up something. I mean, not just the Times itself, but the various editors that I was working with saying that this really clears up for us something that you know, so many articles have tried to say something about. But to, to talk about adolescence and its relation to the social that they are the ones who open out onto the world and find the deadlocks, the aporias, and then also the possibilities when they invent something new.
0: It's all new to them, right? Right. Like they're coming to consciousness, approaching adulthood and saying, what a messed up system I'm looking at here.
1: Yeah, and they have have fresh eyes to, to really show us something. And they're like, oh, this is such a great way to think about what's happening with them right now. And I thought, how have we gotten so far away from understanding this about adolescence? How have we gotten into this model of individuality that we can't understand the dialectical relationship between the creation of a person and the world that's shaping them and that the various forms of illness that erupt are a symptom of our society that are worth taking some cognizance of and responsibility for. And so I was really surprised because I felt like in that article I actually didn't say anything new. I felt like Captain Obvious. I mean, you know, maybe the stuff with the patients was new, but I was reiterating some of the oldest basic 101 psychoanalysis stuff in that article.
0: Most people don't know that sort of thing. Or if they do know it, they forgot it or are unable to connect it with uh, the reality before them. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, a, you know, it's, it's an analog to a kind of psychological defense. One has an individual. You don't see your own problems. <laughs> but we don't want to see the problems of our own society. There's a blindness that uh, serves a defensive purpose.
1: Yeah. I guess I was surprised at the <laughs> extent <Yeah>. of it, <laughs> even though I shouldn't be, I
0: Well, but you know, there's also this broad uh, rejection of psychoanalysis as a discipline. Like, people don't want to hear about that stuff. It's all biochemistry. This idea that personal history or even mass psychology has something to do with uh, people's situation, that's really frowned upon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If it's just biology, then there's nothing to do but medicate them.
0: Yeah, but the idea that <laughs> biology is the prime cause and that one's social experience doesn't affect one's biology. It's just yeah. like, it seems so obvious to me, but <laughs> a lot of other people seem to have a very difficult time understanding that. Do the kids talk about the climate crisis? I remember I was doing an article on DSA three years ago interviewing people then in their 30s, early 30s. They're getting older now, approaching 40, but they're pretty young. And I asked one, what do you think the long-term plan for DSA should be what should the strategy be and she said well I don't think there will be a long term there's no future yeah I was just completely shocked by that reaction young people are supposed to be full of hope <laughs> they're supposed to be our hope for the future and that kind of despair at somebody who's like 30 years old really knocked me for a loop
1: yeah
0: but did you see that sort of thing that the, the notion that climate crisis is dooming us and like why bother
1: oh yeah oh yeah you know that's all I listened to it's really shocking What's the point the world's going to end? Everything's going to be on fire. We're going to be flooded. No one's going to turn this situation around. I don't want to have children. How could I have a child and leave them to a world that's going to get worse? And then all of the other sort of societal insolubilities are piled up on top of that.
0: Yeah. This seems unprecedented to me. Some kids are getting involved in radical politics, but this broad resignation in the face of one's possible doom. And it's not something we couldn't stop. Or couldn't mitigate at least, but this resignation—where do you think that comes from?
1: But don't you feel it?
0: The way I put it, and this makes my wife mad when I say this, but the way I put it is like I'm glad I'm not younger.
1: Yeah, but all of us—all of us, let's say, like older people—are saying that, and they hear us saying it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's not theoretically impossible for us to save ourselves.
1: Theoretically. Yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I really haven't completely resigned myself to do. I haven't
1: either. But, but you,
0: you had a child recently. So, did, yeah. I did, did. You, do you think about this? Do you feel some kind of guilt about bringing a child into this doomed world?
1: I don't, but I understand why they do. And I guess the only reason I could say that I don't is, I don't know, I believe in pleasure, I believe in all kinds of possibilities, otherwise I wouldn't be a psychoanalyst. I think, I think you can't be a resigned, melancholic psychoanalyst. I think that's not good. You've got to do a little bit more work. But I think the ways in which I've managed to reshape myself, understand what I am capable of, what pleasures I take, whatever happens for me, I think whatever happens in the world, I, I believe in the possibility of maintaining myself and my love for my children. That's the best one can do. But I can understand being young, not having had the experience yet of what you're capable of seeing a lot of red tape everywhere you look and thinking, I don't get it. I think the only reason I could have had another child now, and I had a child, this is my second child I had late, is 42, 43, is I have an experience of what I can do. And I like doing what I do, and it means something to me. And it's ethical responsibility towards my patients, which of the world counts for something and keeps me going. But I also know how hard it is to get there, and I think they have a much harder road than I have
0: it does seem like the society is in the grip of a death wish or a death drive mm-hmm. uh i just look mm-hmm. at like the incredibly stupid decisions we're making individually and collectively we acknowledge that oh yeah we've got to decarbonize but you know gas prices are too expensive let me buy that suv it's really hard to connect one's short-term activities with, with a saving us for the long-term yeah, yeah with
1: a long-term project where you save the world
0: In one of the essays in in your new book, you quote Freud's essay on the future of psychoanalysis, which is something I hadn't read before. It does Mm -hmm. sound like a weird weird essay. But there's a passage you quote where he talks about um, to fix neurosis, we have to fix the society, Mm -hmm. which is not the kind of thing he wrote about very often. We're not doing a very good job of that, though, are we? No.
1: No. I mean, I guess the most resigned or despairing I get is when I feel like I'm um, I'm like a garbage man for civilization <laughs> and like I can only clean ten garbage cans for ten years you know like that's the only contribution I can make and yeah, well you're curator of pointless.
0: mental health well I've heard cops say the same thing that they feel like the, the garbage collectors of society but you know it's just like all the damaged people either end up in the criminal justice system or on a couch right. But the, the broader society that produces this is never put on the couch. Right,
1: right, exactly. And it, people, people, I think forget this part of Freud, and it's one of the most important parts. And he was his sociological writings are um, incredibly important. And it's where he gets the most sophisticated. I think civilization and its discontents for me is like the essay of, of Freud essays and. He says civilization and neurosis are in a tight dialectical relationship. And unless we do something about the death drive, unless we do something about recognizing the singularity and differences between people and and figure out how society can accommodate as many different kinds of people as possible, as many different kinds of ways of experiencing pleasure, organizing your life, organizing your mind, make something that makes that available, we will implode. And he says, I hope that Eros wins out and not the death drive, but I can't be sure. He always ended on that, giving you a vision, but pessimism.
0: Yeah, and he was a gloomy Central European. But we Americans seem to have have lost the reflexive upbeatness of, of our culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would be great if we, could, if we got into this sober Freudian pessimism that, that we went from the, the, <laughs> the defiantly active manic American to the nice, sober, slightly pessimistic Freudian, and then we might be able to do something all together. I don't know whether that's possible.
0: Two cheers for ordinary unhappiness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was Jameson Webster, a New York-based psychoanalyst. Her book, Disorganization and Sex, is just out from Divided Publishing. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. On to the psychiatrist, I give you a
1: lecture shot. Instead you living at home with mom and dad, instead of mental hospitals. But every time you tried to read a book, you couldn't get to pay seventeen because you forgot where you were, so you couldn't even read. Don't you know they're gonna
0: kill your sons? Don't you know they're gonna kill kill your sons?
1: Kill,
0: kill How was oh, some of Kill Your Sons by Lou Reed, who died nine years ago on Thursday, the 27th? As a teen, Lou was hospitalized and given electroshock therapy and some early psychiatric drugs, and he did not have good memories of the experience. Next, the emergence of a new school of radical politics over the last five or six years. My next guest, Raina Lipsitz, is the author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, just out from Verso. Some of the story may be familiar, the galvanizing effect of Bernie Sanders' run in 2016, AOC's victory a couple of years later, the explosive growth of Democratic Socialists of America. But who exactly are the people, organizations, and politics behind this rise? And how are they coping with a very different political landscape of today? Raina Lipsitz is a journalist who lives in Brooklyn. She's written for Al Jazeera America, The Appeal, The Atlantic, The Nation, and The New Republic, among others. Raina Lipsitz. Where did all these mobilized young people come from? Yeah, there was a Sanders campaign in 2016, again 2020, but there was a prehistory to it. So how do you trace the origins of this movement?
2: That's a good question. I actually think that it really started in the Obama years. I mean, it started with Occupy in 2011, but then in the Obama years, I think there were a lot of very young people who really worked their hearts out for Obama and then were were disappointed in his performance in office. And then, of course, there's all the statistics that we're familiar with by now about millennial um, student debt burden and also just not being able to afford houses or children or any of these sort of basic life things that other generations have been able to do and have taken for granted. But I think it's that disillusionment that goes back to the Obama years of feeling like you worked hard to put somebody in office who then didn't deliver on a lot of the things you wanted him to deliver on.
0: As for the organizations around this movement, um, I think casual observers may think it's just DSA, and as a loyal DSA member, I certainly like to talk up its role, but what about the fuller cast of characters? What institutions, um, uh, organizations are involved?
2: There's a broader universe, and, and that's sort of what I tried to trace in my book. There are groups like Indivisible, which is probably the least radical group that I talked about, but also the largest they were able to grow their membership really quickly, I think in part because they didn't stake out a super ideological or partisan position. It was just sort of focused on defeating Trump and Trumpism. Um, There's also groups like Sunrise, this sort of new environmental organization that came up in the last few years, and they have been injecting new energy in a lot of ways into the fight for climate justice and then there are groups like Justice Democrats and sort of a new universe of PACs, um, including a PAC that AOC launched, I think, in 2019. And so there, you know, a bunch of new organizations. DSA has been around obviously since 1982, but then had this remarkable growth period as a result, as a direct result of the election of of Trump. But I think there's a bigger picture, and also, of course, a number of Radical black-led organizations, including Dream Defenders, which I talk about in my book. Dre- Dream Defenders is Florida-based, but they actually are in the process of going national, and they are a black-led socialist group committed to a world without prisons. So they're they're abolitionists as well as socialists. DSA is a, a huge part of this, a huge part of the resurgence. But I think also the second iteration of Black Lives Matter has been really critical in bringing in a very large new wave of young people into the left.
0: The race question is sensitive here um, and also important. Uh, DSA is still a predominantly white organization, although you know, most of our headline political candidates are not white, but uh, you know, the organization itself is very white. And had a mixed performance during the 2020 um, post-George Floyd murder um, demonstrations. What about the, the role of race
2: uh, in this movement? We're still watching how it's going to play out. And I do, I agree that DSA, you know, of course, it is majority white, especially in a New York City context. That's been a little overstated. I do think it's more diverse than it's given credit for. Besides the race question, there's also the question of DSA being majority college educated and even a lot of people with graduate degrees. And I think that that's a, noticeable difference and sort of hard to square in some ways with the idea of DSA as the mouthpiece for a kind of broader working class. The race piece was really noticeable. I went to the U.S. Socialism Conference over Labor Day weekend, which was in Chicago this year. It was my first time at that conference. And everybody I talked to who'd been going for a while said, this is the first time they'd seen so many young people of color. And there was a substantial contingent of young Black people from groups like Dream Defenders and, um, and other Black Lives Matter-affiliated organizations. So we talk a lot on the left about building multi multiracial organizations. I think multiracial coalition might be more accurate and more achievable than a single organization that is truly multiracial in character and representative of all of these groups.
0: And of course, uh, mainstream politicians are not above uh, deploying race in a very cynical way. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton did in uh, 2016, but also here in New York, uh, Lori Combo, my former city council person, likes to portray DSA as a front group for white gentrifiers.
2: That's become a really uh, effective talking point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How do you fight that one?
2: I went to a, a press conference in, I guess it was summer 2020, I think that's right, that was called explicitly to fight that particular line, and it was called by a number of mostly Black, some Latino, young people of color who were saying, here we are, you can't erase us and you can't take us out of this movement. We belong here too, and we also exist, you know, so they were pushing back pretty explicitly on the Lori Cumbo line. It's tricky, although, as you pointed out, a lot of the candidates, I think actually every candidate that DSA supported, certainly in the 2018 cycle, but overall, that's who they're running for office, are young people of color who are from the neighborhoods that they're running in. And that's a very conscious decision on the part of DSA. It's a smart one. And you can't say that people like uh, Jabari Brisport, you can't say that those people are not People of color, that they're not real socialists, that they're not from the neighborhoods. They are all of those things. So, partly you fight back by centering the voices of these people who are being told they don't exist. There has to be a, a way that you can counter that sort of cynicism. I mean, it's such a, it's so clear why they're saying that. But, but it's also been effective. There's a part in my book where I talk about I had wanted to cover a sunrise action that they were planning and they were going to target Hakeem Jeffries. They wanted him to uh, sign on to to a particular bill. And they called off the action at the last minute because the national organization said um, it looks bad to target black politicians. Now, if you can't be critical of black people in power, that's a pretty limiting factor on any political organization. And I think we should resist that. To the fullest extent possible.
0: What about the role of ideology in this movement? Some of the people you write about in uh, Justice Democrats and Sunrise come off as pretty pragmatic, technocratic. And reject any kind of ideological labels, the socialist label in particular. Now, there are a couple of issues here. Um, you do need some way to excite a base. Being a technocrat is not a way to excite a base. Having a vision of where to go is important. And having some appreciation of how the capitalist class acts when challenged, <laughs> which is not very uh, generously, is also, I think, important. So what about the role of ideology um, in, in this movement?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, and it's something I I also try to get at in the book. I had in my conversation with Waleed Shahid, who's with Justice Democrats, and he sort of said, we're happy to back candidates who are open socialists in certain races, but he took a very real politic approach to this, and he said it it didn't make sense for um, the example we were talking about at the time was Jessica Cisneros in, in Texas and he said it really didn't make sense in her race, and she wouldn't have gotten a boost by calling herself a socialist. And she didn't really feel connected to it; didn't have any organic relationship with that term. So I think it is a strategic choice that some organizations are making. I belong; I'm a member of DSA because there's a power to having an actual ideology and saying what you think and where it comes from and why you think that, and also a power to having that group identity which to me makes DSA the more attractive choice. But I think when you're talking about electoral politics in particular, I see the argument for having some flexibility for for candidates because there are just places where it's a real campaign killer to come out and say, I'm a socialist.
0: What about the theory of change, which is kind of related to the theory of ideology here? Um, Just elect and elect uh, until something happens or uh, is there some broader vision of how to uh, change the world?
2: Well, I think these groups are all in the process of figuring that out. The thing that DSA has done that I admire a lot and think has had some some impact, although we don't know yet how effective it's going to be, is to create this socialist in office group where they the people we've elected, they meet, I think it's once a week, with certain DSA leaders and sort of coordinate the efforts, both of the socialist bloc in Albany and on the New York City Council, and try to keep that Aligned with the organization, I think you're seeing more strategic seriousness on the left and more ideas about how to do that, how to harness the power of the people who have been elected, keep them accountable to the organizations that have elected them, to bring back basically a sense of party discipline, which if you are somebody who has voted Democratic most of your adult life, which I have you see that the Democratic Party has party discipline only when it comes to sidelining the left, but not really when it comes to passing legislation or doing anything of substance. That's something that we are all collectively figuring out, but I feel pretty hopeful about some of the mechanisms we've come up with in the last couple of years.
0: I'm speaking with Raina Lipsitz, author of The Rise of a New Left from Verso. Uh, Now, you touched on this some, but let's expand on it a bit. Um, The problem of um, winning elections and getting people in office is that office holders usually have to make compromises. Organizations that supported them may find themselves making excuses for their candidates to maintain the tie. When and how do you draw the line here?
2: Different people would draw it differently. And there was, of course, the kerfuffle around Jamal Bowman within DSA. There was a block of members who wanted to expel him from the organization based on some vote that he took and some actions he took around Israel that were perceived to be a contravention of of DSA's stance on Israel. I really didn't have a very strong opinion about that. I think maybe I would have had more of one if I were actively involved with his campaign. But I kind of see both arguments. And I think it's a a really uh, thorny Question. It's like when you you want people to succeed, you want to protect the people you have elected, you want them to do well and stay in office, but you also want them to represent the actual politics that you're trying to enact. So I'm not sure where I would personally draw the line, but I think that's another thing that is being collectively figured out. I mean, did you have, did you have a take on, on Bowman? I, I'd be curious to hear. No,
0: I didn't really. I just kind of threw up my hands in despair, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, some I'll of, leave it to other people to figure out. <laughs> that's kind of the answer to some of these. There's not always a clear and really good answer uh, to some of these questions. I think that DSA has, um, they censured a, a, an alderman in Chicago for a vote he took on the city budget, that was a good thing. I think you have to call people out when they discredit themselves or betray the organization.
0: And what about the relation to organized labor? Um, A lot of DSA people I know want it to be closer. They're constantly trying to get the unions on our side but I don't think the love is really requited. Um, they usually support incumbents. Some of them are pretty hostile to the DSA agenda. And just more broadly, organized labor in the U.S. is very con- cautious and temperamentally conservative and sometimes politically conservative. How do we work that through? We are come out of a movement that feels, you know, a history of socialism feels very close to organized labor, but uh, organized labor is not uh, really playing the role we'd like it to.
2: Right. I, I think that's a huge structural problem, and it's partly unions are have been decimated in the last 50 years, and well, longer than that even, and they don't have the same power that they used to, but they still have more power in certain contexts, certainly, than DSA does. I find it encouraging that so many people within DSA do want to strengthen that relationship. I think you're right that right now it's not uh, exactly requited. I think, I have an uncle who just retired as the head of the Western New York Labor Coalition. Is that what, it, I think that's the name of it. Anyway, he, you know, represented Teamsters, worked with them for a long time. He had some, he's sort of, you know, not sure what he thinks about DSA and he's he's skeptical of the organization. He and I have had some arguments over the years, but I think what he wants and what I want and what anyone who's serious about moving the left forward wants is for there to be a serious and respectful re- relationship that and to bring those two parts of the left together DSA is about i think 10% of DSA members belong to unions and DSA has officially supported a lot of the recent labor resurgence and Starbucks unionization efforts and the Amazon uh, warehouse victory on Staten Island and I think that those are good things. But what we haven't quite done yet is demonstrate to more established unions and, and large power center type unions that we have something to offer them. And I think that is a real challenge because right now we we have something to offer them, but it's it's limited. It's We don't have the numbers that we would like and we don't have the cohesion that we would like. I think that strike support is a really good thing that I know DSA is involved in, but it's not going to be enough to get everybody on board.
0: You know the cliches that there's a limited audience for DSA-style politics for the broader politics you write about here. Um, It's a bunch of underemployed kids with advanced degrees who live in hipster Brooklyn, and the heartland is full of Trump lovers who'd uh, sooner beat up a socialist uh, than vote for one. How much truth is there to that, and uh, how do we approach it?
2: that's less and less true and i i say that as somebody who grew up in buffalo which is it's not technically the midwest but in a lot of cultural ways i think we're we're pretty similar to the midwest you can certainly find reactionaries um and you'll find more reactionaries in certain parts of the country than in others but that's changing and it's changing pretty noticeably there are young people and older people i mean i, I was actually sort of surprised by the number of people over 50 who I knew in Buffalo who were very, very enthusiastic about India Walton's campaign for mayor, for example. So-
0: Yeah, we took a big hit there, though.
2: We did. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that was, I think there were a lot of reasons for that. But I think also the the left could could have been better prepared for some of what happened. I mean, especially the part where they weaponized New York State electoral law. I mean, that's somebody, there should be somebody who knows what they'll- what the voting laws are and what what's allowed, what's legal, whether you can actually, as Byron Brown did, send hundreds of thousands of people a stamp with your name on it so they can just go and literally rubber stamp you, uh, which is what he did, which helped him a lot. So I guess I, I'd say that the country is changing in the sense that there are more places with more pockets of people who are not only open to, but but very enthusiastic about some of these new left ideas, which are not new, really. That's part of why they catch on because they're old ideas, but they've been missing from our politics for a long time.
0: This is a movement that's no longer in its youth. Um, how do you think it's aging? Is it maturing or in its senescence?
2: Well, I think we've learned some valuable lessons. And I think there are things we've done really well on and then things that have sort of petered out, or that for now at least, where we seem to be plateauing. I think you know, the membership surge was always going to be really hard to sustain. And that has dropped off with Trump out of office. I do think that we're getting more sophisticated in other ways, though, and coming up, you know, for example, socialists in office, as I was saying earlier, there are new mechanisms in place and new strategies that are being considered and pioneered that I have that I'm hopeful about. But it's it's also not where I hoped we would be. I think a lot of people thought for a, at least a week that maybe Bernie would would actually pull it off <laughs> in twenty twenty, and then that those hopes were dashed. So there there hasn't been um some of the shortcuts that that I and millions of other people had really really hoped for, including uh, say India Walton be- becoming mayor of Buffalo, which didn't happen. But that teaches you something really valuable, and I think there are places we can go from there now that we have seen more of what works and what doesn't work.
0: If we go back a couple of years, the uh, post-George Floyd uh, demonstrations attracted, by Gallup's measure, 10% of the grown-up population of the U.S., which is a remarkable number, probably the most populous protest movement the U.S. has ever seen. Um, And then you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm around the Green New Deal. And now it's all about cracking down on crime, and gas is too expensive. And then now you have the right going on about pronouns and critical race theory, and liberals are squirming uncomfortably about those things. So, how do we reconfigure for this uh, very different environment?
2: In a way, all of this is 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 just cyclical, right? I mean, there there have been lots of uh, moments where crime went up, and then that became the the big dominant thought in American politics: so How how do we deal with rising crime rates? That's that happened in the seventies. It happened in the nineties. It's happening again now. I I don't have a magic answer for how you push back on those things, but I think one thing that helps is to ha- is to be really clear about what you believe. And the reason that liberals and the Democratic Party as an institution are having so much trouble countering that is that they have less of a, they have nothing to point to, to say, these are the things that we stand for. The Democratic Party in particular is always in a defensive crouch. And so you can't, there's no position of strength to come from to fight back on those things. I think if we could say, here's our program, we have, you know, here are the, I don't know, five things we want to do. This is the kind of world we all deserve. And to be much clearer and more forceful and more consistent about that—that that would help a lot. But it, instead, if you have people like Kathy Hochul saying, "Okay, fine, we'll undo bail reform. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we even tried to do that. We shouldn't have. We're going to reverse all of that," and that uh, makes you look weak, and it is weak, and it opens the door for your your political opponents to um, misrepresent what what's going on.
0: That was Raina Lipsitz, author of The Rise of a New Left, just out from Verso. If you happen to be in Providence on November 15th, you can catch her at the Riff Raff Bookstore and Bar, which sounds like a fine place. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of Abilene from the new album by Plains, which consists of Katie Crutchfield, a.k.a. Waxahachie, and Jess Williamson. Till next week, bye. (music) Talk about
2: Abilene Cause
0: Abilene
1: don't mean No coffee shop, no liquor store So I don't talk about
2: Abilene no more Young lovers like to dream We'll settle down and make a good
1: Your Abilene mm-hmm. We don't need to talk about our-